Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. So far in our series focused on the Guadalcanal campaign, we've talked about the landings and fighting at the small island of Tulagi, as well as the first Japanese counterattack at Alligator Creek, or the first battle of the Tenaru, an area where the Japanese suffered pretty substantial casualties for this early in the fight. It would force them to regroup, re-equip, resupply, and plan to strike back another day and another place. Well, by by mid-September of 1942, that day had come, and the place chosen was an area known as Lunga Ridge. So today, we have the story of Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Edson, the commander of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion that held the line during a battle that came to be known as Edson's Ridge. Commanding the 1st Marine Raider Battalion, Edson and his men landed at Tulagi at the start of the campaign. That island fell, I mean, it was pretty small, as we mentioned a few episodes ago, The island fell pretty quickly, and the bulk of the Marines, especially from the Raider Battalion, were moved into the American lines on Guadalcanal, protecting the airfield. The Raiders were placed along an area known as Alligator Creek, and before long found themselves engaged in, as mentioned in the last episode, kind of the first major Japanese counterattack at Guadalcanal. Now, Guadalcanal was an interesting campaign because it it comes across more like what we would see in the European theater, where sides can be dug in and reinforced constantly from the rear. This isn't something we'd see later in the war, right? There were islands, say when we land at Iwo Jima, we know roughly how many Japanese are there defending and we have an idea of their equipment. But even if we don't, that's what we're up against. Whatever's there, the day we hit the beaches, that's it. The Japanese aren't able by that point in the war to resupply the island and bring in men, material, equipment, ammunition, food, water. So when we strike an island in 44 and 45, especially, whatever's there is there. That's not the case at Guadalcanal. There were constant resupplies, building up of forces on both sides. It was unique in the sense, and this kind of shows how early in the war it was, the seas and the air weren't necessarily entirely dominated by the Americans, as we kind of come to associate with Europe by 1944, or by much of the fighting in the Pacific theater, even you know not long after this. The way it played out on Guadalcanal for quite a while is the Americans owned the air and the sea around Guadalcanal during daylight hours. They owned the sea mostly because they owned the air. There was a small fighter force stationed at Henderson Field on Guadalcanal. We'll talk more about that here shortly. And then the American aircraft carriers that were not you know, parked off the coast of Guadalcanal, but at least had their aircraft within range, could protect convoys coming in to drop off more supplies, more men, evacuate wounded, whatever was needed, bring in more aircraft to be parked at Henderson Field. But when the sun went down, Japan took over. And something that was known as the Tokyo Express would shuttle troops onto Guadalcanal, troops and equipment. They would shell the airfield, 
including the American positions on the line, all up and down the American line would, would come under shelling at night from the Japanese ships. The Japanese, as mentioned before, took pride in their night fighting abilities. And this really played out not just on Guadalcanal, but in the naval battles as well. I mean, we saw right out the gate some severe American losses during the Battle of Sabo Island that kind of stopped the American and Australian navies from really wanting to spend much time after dark in and around Guadalcanal. So what we would see is not not quite 100% dialed in, but pretty darn close to 12 hours on, 12 hours off ownership of the area around Guadalcanal. This also meant that the Marines at Guadalcanal sometimes were susceptible to Japanese strafing runs and bombing runs from aircraft. It's just not something that we saw a lot in later campaigns unique. But this control of the skies around Guadalcanal, almost think of it like a bubble, is the reason that the airfield, Henderson Field, is so important. That airfield, with the few aircraft they have there, known as the Cactus Air Force, was the only thing keeping the supply trains running, right? Without that, the United States, the Marines, are entirely dependent on resupply protection from the carrier aircraft that are still moving around in the Southwest Pacific. Without that airfield, they can't resupply. And if they can't resupply, and the Japanese can, it's just going to be a matter of time before they're surrounded and annihilated. Now, Henderson Field, we've talked about it a couple times here. There's, there's kind of an interesting story there. It was taken very quickly during the initial fighting on Guadalcanal. Named Henderson, It wasn't named Henderson Field before we landed, right? The Marines took it and named it Henderson Field in recognition or in in memory of Major Lofton Henderson, who's the first Marine aviator killed during the Battle of Midway. And then the Air Force that was stationed on Guadalcanal, so not just carrier aircraft offshore, but there were actually aircraft flying in, landing, and, and, all this, and calling Henderson Field home, was referred to as the Cactus Air Force, which is great that Cactus refers to the code name for the island, but it kind of, it fits. This is a rugged group. They're they're getting by with what they've got. They famously wouldn't have the supplies they needed. They're under attack, you know, at times day and night. They're trying to repair aircraft, man aircraft. The runway is still a work in progress, right? So these guys were roughing it. So to hear that they're called the Cactus Air Force, it just fits, doesn't it? Now, this airfield is so important. It's a strategic objective for both sides. The Japanese recognize that they don't have to you know, kill all of the Americans on the island to, to win this battle. And this is something that I think when we, when we study military history, because of all of the death and the killing, we tend to focus a lot on that, the number of casualties, how many were killed, wounded, captured. But it's very, very rare that a fight starts or a battle starts with the pure intention of killing as many enemy as possible. There's a larger objective at play. Pretty quickly in the Guadalcanal campaign, the Japanese objective would shift to taking back the airfield. They recognized its importance, as did we, which is why our perimeter sits right around said airfield. Now, at this point in the campaign, the Japanese are still operating off of what I would call faulty intelligence. If you recall, during the Battle of the Tenaru, they hit the Marine lines expecting nowhere near the size force they ran into, and it cost them dearly. By early September, you know, the first week or two of September, the Japanese expect that there are around 2,000 Marines at Guadalcanal. 
when the actual number is much closer to 12,000. So they're off by a factor of six. That's going to be important. Now, numbers don't always matter. It's not just the number of troops that you have on the island that matters. It's how and where they're going to be employed as well. And that's how we get into this back and forth between the two commanders. On the American side, the commander of the 1st Marine Raider Battalion, Lieutenant Colonel Edson. On the Japanese side, Major General Kawaguchi, which I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. He had about 6,000 men that would participate in this next offensive with the stated aim of taking the airfield. Here's their plan. With around 6,000 troops, which is quite a bit more than attacked at the tender, I want to say that was what right around 900 that actually attacked at Alligator Creek. Kawaguchi has around 6,000 with a stated goal of routing and annihilating the enemy in the vicinity of the Guadalcanal airfield. You can see already how important that's playing into the Japanese plans. They plan an attack for September 12th, and their intent is to, or their, their plan is to split this 6,000-man group into three groups. They're going to find an area to attack, hit part it, part of it from the, well, excuse me, part from the west, part from the east, and then 3,000 right up the middle at whatever this stated point is that we now know was Lunga Ridge. Kawaguchi asked for airstrikes on that ridge, the expected American positions for three days prior, and he wanted the Imperial Navy to set sail for the strait throughout the one or two day fight, whatever it might be, in order to stop the evacuation. I mean, you can see again what we talked about in the last episode, the idea of victory disease, where the Japanese have been so successful for so long. I mean, and it's not crazy far off. Kawaguchi's taking 6,000 into a fight in an area that he thinks is poorly defended. More on that in a moment. He's planning to cut off their escape route. He thinks not only are they going to win this fight, but the Americans are going to be trying to retreat, trying to have their ships come in and pull them off the island. He's, he's planning to completely wipe out all the Marines of Guadalcanal. Now, with 6,000 planned Japanese soldiers in the attack, Kawaguchi thinks he has the upper hand. He's you know, if nothing else, he outnumbers the Marines three to one potentially. And if he's focusing 3000 in one area, kind of the fist to punch through the American lines, you can understand his level of confidence. It helps his cause that just before the attack, you know, we're skipping forward a little bit here. We'll come back to a little more around the planning, but just before the attack, he comes into possession of some intelligence from a downed American pilot that says Lunga Ridge is the least defended portion of the American line. So piece this together for Kawaguchi. He's got 6,000 to the expected American two. And then right before they attack, he, he hears that that's probably the least defended of the American line. If the Americans have 2,000 spread across the entire perimeter around Henderson Field, I mean, he might, he might expect to punch through this pretty quickly, pretty easily. Now, the Japanese, excuse me, the Americans are tipped off that there's a pending Japanese attack, or more specifically, that there is a concentration of Japanese soldiers just down the coast. Edson and his leadership agree to a raid that jumps off coast and lands um, just a couple kilometers down to check out what this is. I mean, they're, they're, they're going into a fight with the Japanese that are expected to be there. They depart from their lines, dug in still along Alligator Creek, push down, and in one of those weird twists in military history, or just in history in general, there are quite a few Japanese at this little outpost. 
And when Edson's men begin to land or, or near the beaches, the Japanese look out and see some transport barges moving through. They confuse those for a larger American landing and think we can't repel a large American invasion. At this point, they retreat into the jungle. Of course, it was only a few hundred raiders of Edson's unit that were actually landing on the beach. The short raid would kill 27 Japanese soldiers, but that wasn't the big win here. The big win was the intelligence. They gathered information. Well, there are a couple, a couple ways to look at this. The amount of munitions and supplies and food that they came across was surprising. The Americans also didn't think there were that many Japanese at Guadalcanal. This suggested otherwise. But they also picked up intelligence that there was an attack coming. Around 3,000 strong, maybe. So here we have it again. The Japanese going off intelligence that there are 2,000 Americans, and they've got it wrong, right, by about a factor of six. The Americans pick up intelligence that says there's about 3,000 Japanese preparing to attack. That's helpful. You know, it's coming. You've got an idea, but that number's also wrong, right? Kawaguchi's attacking with 6,000. Either way, the Americans are now tipped off. Lieutenant Colonel Merritt Edson and his Raider Battalion are tipped off that there's going to be an attack. They just don't know where and they just don't know when. Now, Edson takes this information. It was his Raiders that, that gathered the intel in the first place. He takes this information to Major General Vandegrift, the overall commander of Marines on Guadalcanal. He says, there's going to be an attack. And I think, or Colonel Edson now speaking, right? says, I think it's going to happen at Lunga Ridge. He's looking at this map and recognizing the, the dense jungle and the likely avenues of approach and where might the Japanese strike given the opportunity. And Edson points to this area, Lunga Ridge in the south. Vandegrift disagrees. He thinks the Japanese are likely to approach in the same avenue they came roughly during the Battle of the Tenru or Alligator Creek. It's much easier terrain that to navigate there. It's a lot easier to get heavy equipment in and out, to reinforce, to maintain command and control. What Vandegrift is saying makes sense. It's not crazy. But how about this? Edson disagrees. He thinks it's going to happen at Lunga Ridge. So he says, great. If you think the fighting is going to happen over here at the Tenaru, my guys are in that line. They fought you know, at Tulagi. They fought the first battle of the Tenaru. If this is going to be where this major fight kicks off, can we swap out, give my guys a little bit of rest? You know, maybe move us to a quieter part of the line. Vandegrift agrees. The quieter part of the line that Edson has in mind? Lunga Ridge. And on, the, on September 11th, Edson and his men moved down the American lines to reinforce this quiet sector of the American lines on Lunga. By this point on September 11th, excuse me, by this point, the Japanese are nearly in position preparing to attack. But it took longer than expected, and they're less organized at this point than expected. There were issues moving through the jungle. I mean, there aren't roads that they're walking down, right? They're cutting through brush, and it was incredibly slow. But the confidence is high. Remember, as they're nearing the positions, Kawaguchi still has that information suggesting this is the least defended area. He Again, he thinks he outnumbers the Marines 3-1, to and this is the least defended area in that sector. It might be a walkthrough. Now, why might this be the most or the least defended area in the American lines? It makes sense. The Alligator Creek area up against the coastline had 
easier avenues of approach, easier ways to get through. The jungle down here at Lunga Point is thick. Like hard to get one person through at a time, thick. Not like those trails that you see, you know, maybe pictures from Vietnam or either other portions of the Second World War where, yeah, the jungle's thick, but there's a road going through and you can see Jeeps and trucks moving. That is not the terrain south of Lunga Point. It is nasty, thick overgrowth where even one person has a hard time getting through. The idea of, first off, heavy equipment, you know, artillery pieces, for instance, just not happening. It's just not even feasible. But even moving a group of soldiers through that terrain and trying to maintain command and control is, I mean, like borderline impossible. It's the type of type of undergrowth, the type of vegetation to where you take one step and you have to pause and think, I don't know how to, I don't know how to keep going forward. Do I have to go right to go left? Do I have to duck? Do I have to crawl over? I mean, it's, it, this isn't a matter of, of how fast it's foot by foot. It's step by step for the entire Japanese force. It's crazy thick stuff to walk through. So that's why the American lines weren't super heavily defended in that area. That's why Kawaguchi picks that area because it's going to surprise the Americans. But by the time they get into position to attack, it's a little bit of chaos because even once some of the Japanese units are there, they don't have great command and control with the others to their left or right. But at 9.30 at night on September 12th, the attack went ahead and kicked off. Again, remember, Japanese attacking at night, this is their advantage. This is when they feel they had the upper hand on the Americans. For the Americans, it's terrifying. I mean, it'd be terrifying for me. It's hard to imagine. At 9.30, the Japanese Navy opens fire, a couple destroyers offshore on the Marine positions. They were accurate, didn't cause very many casualties. And after about 20 minutes of bombardment, some flares go up and the Japanese attack. Now, this isn't some big open field they have to cross, right? The jungle is incredibly, incredibly thick. And as they're moving forward, they're trying to probe the American lines, figure out, you know, not just where the American lines are, but where are those machine guns? Those are the things of the most concern, right? So the tactic that the Japanese employed, you know, worked well against green soldiers or Marines that hadn't been in a fight is they would yell. And a lot of times that yelling would prompt an American machine gunner to open up nervous, scared, right? Well, Edson's men were battle-hardened at this point. They were used to these tactics. And as the Japanese yelled, they stayed silent and held their position as long as possible, waiting. You don't want the enemy to know where your machine guns are. The fight was on that night of September 12th was relatively effective. The Japanese overran a couple positions. But this combination of attacking at night and dealing with that nasty, thick jungle undergrowth caused a lot of confusion. It was a little bit of a frantic fight. And the Japanese weren't really able to take full advantage of the gains they made and, and were forced to, you know, before sunup, retreat back into the jungle to try to regroup, consolidate, and come up with a plan for the following night. Now, throughout the day, they are shelled and strafed by American artillery and fighters. But they're waiting. They're again going to wait until the night to to resume this attack. And it's during this time that Lieutenant Colonel Edson, the, the first day of fighting is done, but really the, the nasty stuff is yet to come. Edson recognizes this. He knows the Japanese aren't done. That was just more a probing attack. 
as deadly as it might have been. Edson used this time to have his men dig in further. There wasn't a lot they could do. They only had, you know, 12 hours or less. They were still at times engaged with the enemy. They weren't completely in the clear. He had them dig in, reinforce foxholes, resupply ammunition, clear out fields of fire, clear out dead Japanese soldiers if they were blocking fields of fire, string wire wherever possible. And at one point, he pulls out a grenade box, stands on top and gives a you know, motivational speech to his guy, says, I know you got it in you. Re, you know, reinforcements will be here tomorrow. I'm confident. Give me one more day. Give me one more night. In addition, he calls in some artillery, moves some artillery pieces forward near the Marine position to the point where some are going to be able to employ what's called direct fire. Artillery and mortars we are, are indirect fire weapon systems, it means they're going to fire at something that the gunner might not actually be able to see. Maybe it's over a mountain. Maybe it's just a long ways away. You can, however, lower that cannon to fire point blank into enemy positions at close range. That's part of the setup here at Lunga Ridge. Before long, the sun starts to set and the Marines know what's coming. Think about that. Think about being in their shoes. Think about, you know, for me, it's the thought of a test or an exam or something or a game that you're nervous about coming up the next day or maybe the next week and you've got that knot in your stomach. You know, have I done all I can to prepare? Am I really ready? You just get anxious. These guys know what's coming. I mean, not only did they live it on Tulagi and in the Teneru, they just had it in this position at Lunga Ridge the night before. They know another attack is coming. They know how deadly and resilient the Japanese fighters are. It's hard to imagine the feelings as that sun was setting. How many were just hoping that it wouldn't, right? But as everyone expects, around 9 o'clock on the evening of September 13th, the second day of the battle, the Japanese destroyers open up once more, shelling the ridge again. Not super effective, didn't you know decimate the American positions by any ways, caused a few casualties. But then it's safe to say the main attack kicked off. And the evening of 13 September, around 3,000 Japanese soldiers attacked Edson and the 1st Raider Battalion, along with a few other Marine units that were tied in, around 830 of them. 3,000 against around 830. But those 830 are dug in and are holding defensive positions. The attack, again, was a little unorganized, a little frantic, given the terrain. But the Japanese did see some success and the Marine line started to give. At one point, so much so that a scared Marine or two yelled gas, like you would see in the First World War. And that spread through the lines. And before long, Lieutenant Colonel Edson looks up and he's got Marines sprinting away from the battlefield, yelling, you know, withdraw, gas. Most of these men didn't have gas masks. Some did. Edson makes his way to the front of the retreating Marines, gives them, I think the history books referred to it as some colorful language, some motivational language, pushed them back to the front lines and continued to lead the fight. Now, Edson is said to have been everywhere that day. Somehow here he is catching guys, you know, moving away from the battlefield when they were needed on the line, but he was also right up there at the front, repositioning men, companies, platoons as needed, working with his company commanders, organizing airstrikes during the day and artillery strikes 
at night. Somehow, on top of all of that, he's able to stop this potential retreat that could have ended in a rout. But as mentioned, the Japanese are seeing success. And before long, Edson starts to consolidate his men into an area known as Hill 123. It's, you know, I mean, it looks like an Alamo position. It's their last stand. They're, they're really holding on in three directions. And the hill is important in that it overlooks this entrance area, or really the avenue of approach between a river and the ridge that would move um, straight to the airfield. That's where the Japanese want to move through, either right through there or right along the ridge. While the Americans are on the ridge, if they try to go down beneath, Edson has held the has his men in a position where they can hammer the Japanese moving through, and they do. It's devastating losses for the Japanese, helped in part by American artillery. There is, at one point after the battle, a Japanese soldier said that the artillery alone killed 90% of his unit. The Marines knew where the Japanese were coming through and called in the artillery and just had it keep hitting, bringing down the steel rain, just one after the other, after the other. As the Japanese attacked, it was just wave after wave. There were reports from some of Edson's men that said you'd shoot two and six more would follow. Human waves. Many of these Japanese soldiers were taking up to six shots to fall. And there were stories of enemy soldiers so severely wounded that their their intestines were hanging out and they were crawling forward, trying to continue the attack until they fell dead right at the front of the American positions. I mean, that's the kind of thing that sticks with you. That's, that's a nightmare. And this is early in the Pacific campaign. These are the kind of stories that will permeate across the world, across the United States, across the Marine Corps, throughout the rest of the war. The fighting went on all night, many times resorting, as we'd see all across the Pacific, in hand-to-hand combat. But Edson stayed at the front lines, motivating his men. And in one of the, you know, you hear this, this isn't common, but it's a common item for leaders like this. Edson was walking the line behind his men. They're fighting, the bullets are flying. And even with two bullet holes through his shirt, Edson is standing up, motivating his men, urging them forward. There was a Marine after the fact that said, we were hugging the earth as as much as we could. We couldn't get lower. And you turn around and Colonel Edson is walking the line, reminding his men to fight on. Daylight's almost here. After hours and hours of intense combat, much of it hand-to-hand, the sun finally rose on the 14th and the Japanese reorganized around the base of Hill 123-123. Edson would call for and coordinate close air support onto those, you know, reorganizing Japanese positions, essentially ending the attack. That means that the 830 Marine Raiders in Edson's battalion would hold on against 3,000. Edson's leadership really helped This is one of those rabbit holes you can go down. If Henderson Field had fallen, what does the rest of the war look like? If barely a month into the Guadalcanal campaign, we can't even take the first objective without getting kicked off the island, what's next? Do we still push forward? Do we have to regroup? Do The entire war in the Pacific, the entire Second World War could have played out differently. This wasn't a one-man effort. Edson was one man. 
And uh, it wasn't a one-man effort. Edson was only one part of it, but he's the one who recognized the fight was going to happen at Luga, at Luga Ridge. He's the one who led his men in their defense. He's the one who stopped the attempted retreat while his men were confused and didn't know what was happening. What if he hadn't? What if he hadn't done any of those things? For his actions during that fight, Edson would be put in for and awarded the Medal of Honor. That battlefield would come to be known as a few different things. Lunga Ridge for one, Bloody Ridge for another. But finally, if you look it up today, it's known as the Battle of Edson's Ridge. Colonel Edson, Lieutenant Colonel Edson was promoted to colonel and led the 5th Marine Regiment later on Guadalcanal and eventually promoted to Brigadier General and as, a, as an assistant division commander fought on Saipan and Tinian. In 1947, he retired as a major general after 30 years of service and began working on a project tied in with prisoners of war from the Second World War. And in 1955, while he was working on that project, Colonel Edson, or now Major General Edson, killed himself. There's not been a clear reason why, but it's there's a lot of stories about his leadership saying that he was a very compassionate leader. He supposedly cried when his runner was killed, something that you're, you don't expect to see from these hardened, emotionless sometimes combat leaders. But apparently that was something that his compassion was something that attracted his men to him, that really made them want to follow. And it's easy to overlook the amount of carnage he saw, the damage he saw to his men and even these POWs he was working with after the war. This was the first major attempt to try to take back the airfield, but it wouldn't be the last. In just a few short weeks, the Japanese would strike again, kicking off one of the most iconic battles in the Pacific, the Battle of Henderson Field. That's next time on War Stories. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.